Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. It's Steph. It's 20 past 8 on the 14th of June, 2006. Well, I'm back in the saddle again. It's uh, time to be back on the road and heading back to work. So, hope you're doing well. It's um, Wednesday, so nice, juicy three-day week. My throat's still a little funky from my cold, so I apologize if I sound like I've... Uh, just spent the afternoon at an Aerosmith or the evening at an Aerosmith concert. Uh, pretty good band, by the way. Uh, I really like the album Pump. Uh, what It Takes is a great song, I think. There's a couple of other great songs on that album. And Big Ten Inch Record is also a great song of theirs. Um, so if you get a chance to uh, listen to that, give it a shot. Um, so I'm going to try some rambly thing today because I'm back in the car. See, I don't have any facts at my fingertips. So I'm going to try to uh, do something uh, just a little bit rambly, because I had an idea last night. I'm reading a book of Christina's called A Boy Named Dibs, and it's a book from the 60s about play therapy and a child who has um, uh, cold and distant hyper-intellectual parents, and his father's a scientist, his mother was a surgeon, and they just don't have any real emotional skills, so the kid's pretty introverted and strange. And so this woman is trying to get his um, uh, his uh, sense of self to come out a little bit in a more stable manner through a play therapy. So he's playing and he's talking and she's just echoing and repeating and uh, I guess trying to tease out some of his more natural states and his hostilities and all that kind of stuff. And it's a little bit biased in a way that the stuff in the 50s and 60s is around religion, right? So the two people who are cold and emotionally unskilled are uh, not religious, right? So his parents are not religious, according to this book. But there are two other people who are religious in this child's life. One is uh, the gardener, uh, and the other is his grandmother. So they're both church-going people, and they are more... Uh, sensitive, empathetic, emotionally skilled, and so on. So I was reading this last night, and I was sort of thinking about this whole question of religion and why it seems to be such a common theme among culture. And I'm sort of going to go with a, a possible explanation as to the utility of religion. Now, I mean, I know that I've said in the past, and I would still stand by this, that religion is something that is inflicted upon people and it is something that is it's a power structure and it's exploitive and they organized religion and so on but I'm going to try to put forward a mental model that uh, came to me last night that I think might have some some value in terms of exploring it because I've noticed a little bit of this I don't know, well it's hard to say because the Free Domain Radio Board is my first board, I've never really gotten involved in boards before so the Free Domain Radio Board is my first board, but I have debated people over the years, off and on, well, actually, usually on, uh, occasionally off, and so I think I've gotten some sense of understanding of the debating styles of libertarians, and it does seem to be a little bit punchy, it does seem to be a little bit, uh, it's not, not bad on, on this board, I think, it's probably one of the reasons why... I, I shied away from boards because a lot of people are kind of uh, uh, not the same in cyberspace that they would be sort of face-to-face, -face, which I would consider sort of an integrity issue, but that's just me. And so I was thinking about this last night, just as I was uh, heading to sleep, 
thinking about whether or not some of the uh, atheists, and I mean, not all libertarians are atheists, of course, but uh, some of them are, that some of the atheists might have certain problems with empathy, not because they don't believe in God, but because they don't have access to the same kind of humility, I guess you could say, that a belief in God provides to people. And again, not to all people, but just to some people. So, if you don't mind, we'll go on a bit of a journey, see if this uh, leads anywhere. I think I have uh, some feeling that it might, but of course it all has to be validated by uh, common sense. So, when I was thinking about, or when I was talking about Freud and the new studies that show the enormous amount of activity that occurs in the unconscious for people, uh, which I talked about uh, last week, and talking about it with Christina over the vacation... She's uh, found some sort of estimates that roughly 80% of mental activity occurs in the unconscious. And so I found that to be very, uh, very, very fascinating because it certainly has been my experience, my own experience through the process of going through uh, therapy was to some degree the process of connecting my unconscious or my instincts to the real world, right? So... I was well-versed in Jung, and I remember early on in my therapy bringing a dream to my therapist wherein I was being chased around a sort of dungeon-like area by a, uh, a hostile and angry woman. So, of course, I came in with the um, uh, rather self-satisfied explanation that this was my anima, this is the, uh, the Jungian, the, 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 the female version of the male, and this was my anima, so it was all very much internal. And my therapist was rather surprised and said, well, uh, it would seem to me that that could be the case, of course, but the first place that I would think of looking would be uh, that this is your mother. I was still seeing my mother at the time. I can't remember if I'd had lunch with her or not uh, recent, like shortly before the therapy session. And that came as a real shock to me, um, <laughs> because I am a hopeless intellectual. But it did come as a real shock to me that my own emotional instincts or more what was occurring at the deepest level of me would not be internal but would rather be a reflection of the external so you know a, a rough way of, of, ex of explaining it or putting it would be something like this that I uh, hated and feared my mother but I kind of forced myself to see her because I perceived it as virtuous. This is sort of my, I was still sort of infected by my brother's altruistic sense of virtue. And so I, I kind of repressed my fear and hostility of her. I still felt afraid and hostile towards her, but obviously not enough to change my behavior in terms of seeing her. I mean, I did see her very little, but that really wasn't like once a week for lunch, but that really wasn't uh, uh, valid. So what happened to the fear and the hostility that occurred uh, with my mother, or that I felt towards my mother, well, it went into my unconscious, and therefore it got played out as dreams. My unconscious was warning me about my mother, that thinking that, uh, that she wasn't dangerous kept me in a dungeon. The dreams are always very complicated. It's not just like the location of the dream is important and not just what's happening in it, right? So... The fact that I'm being chased around a dungeon by this crazy, hostile woman was important because 
I had to connect that with my mother, and also because I stayed in a dungeon, I stayed underground, I stayed in a kind of prison. By uh, I couldn't get out uh, as long as I didn't recognize this, right? So as soon as I recognized that and stopped seeing my mother, those dreams stopped and were replaced by dreams about my brother. Anyway, <laughs> we can come back to that another time if you like. But it was quite a shock to me that my own instincts were actually connected to the outside world, that my deepest instincts, my dreams, everything that was occurring at the, in the unconscious for me was a clear warning about the outside world. It was a clear analysis, a very clear-eyed analysis of the outside world. And that was really quite fascinating to me and quite liberating and quite liberating because although I've been a moralist since post-diapers <laughs> pre-grave perhaps, uh, I, I just hadn't been able to make all the connections that I needed to make in terms of integrity. So I was still thinking through everything. So I was still very susceptible to people's opinions, uh, and I still had a kind of flimsy... I mean, within my own world, I was quite uh, uh, ethical and, and strained for that, or strained is probably the wrong word, but aimed probably for that kind of integrity. But in the world, like in the wider worlds, I, I just hadn't knit it all together. And that's sort of understandable, because it's not something that the conscious mind is very good at. Is synthesizing everything to a course of action. The conscious mind, we sort of make a list of, you know, so Benjamin Franklin's advice, right? You make a list of things, what are the pros and what are the cons, and you sort of, but, and that's fine, it's, it's a fine thing to do. I've never found that to be too helpful, though, because the problem isn't the pros and the cons, because every decision, as any economist knows, every decision that you can make involves pros and cons. The question is, how are they weighted, and what's the short-term and long-term benefits, and uh, what uh, meshes best with your personality st style and so on. And so that has never been that helpful to me. But I did find through the process of uh, therapy, I tried a, a very interesting uh, process. Uh, so I didn't realize it was a process until after I, I started and, and then you know, brought it into therapy. The process is, is called automatic writing or something like that, where you, you engage in a debate about yourself with yourself. So it's almost like you're writing a play, and you're just kind of putting the questions out there, like, what should I do, or what do, I th what, what do you think of this person, or what's the solution to this? And oftentimes I found that through the process of engaging in a dialogue with myself, that I would get the most startling insights and conclusions, and it's not like I heard a voice, and it's not like, you know, the, the Ouija board moved my hand or my pen on the paper or anything like that. But when I sort of relaxed and allowed myself to listen to to the wisdom that I didn't know I had kind of kind of thing then I got an enormous amount of insight and and value out of that so I think I've talked about uh, this is many podcasts ago now but when I was in Guatemala traveling with a friend of a friend uh, she she went to go and see uh, the um, the ruins so what I did was I um, just sat, sat in a hammock for five hours, basically. And I listened to a bit of music, and I, I napped a little bit, but for the most part, I was uh, just uh, sitting there thinking, or not thinking, just sort of really relaxed. And at the end of this sort of five-hour period, the answer came to me out of nowhere. Uh, and again, it's not like a voice. Uh, it, it's not crazy or anything like that. I'm not crazy. But it's uh, really, it's just a very strong, instinctual, powerful feeling with a very str a sense of a sense of completeness and a sense of certainty that I um, never really got for my conscious mind, which is not a bad thing, conscious mind is fantastic at things that the unconscious is not good at, like specific focus. But uh, I ended up with the uh, revelation, so to speak, that I just had to break with my brother, and that was something that has never wavered uh, ever since. 
And that came not out of me ra reasoning through something, but out of me relaxing and not doing anything for five hours. And there's uh, a number of different ways that that can be categorized, a sort of self-hypnotic state or a deep state of relaxation. But what happened was a, a very significant answer in my life and a very significant uh, course of action in my life, which was to no longer see my brother, came to me, and I wasn't even thinking about my brother, and I certainly wasn't thinking about breaking with him, but the answer came, and it has never wavered since. And that's not something, you know, as, as a, uh, a hyper-conceptual intellectual, not wavering is not always the easiest state of mind to achieve, as, as I've certainly experienced in my life. But to have something where it's like, wow, that's, that's it, boom, it's there, it's not going to change, and it's, a, it's, a, um, it's something which comes to me, you could say. Of course, it's already in me, and it's been in, in me since I was like three years old, but um, it was uh, for a variety of reasons we don't have to get into here. The right time hadn't occurred in my life yet, so once uh, I went through all of that sort of stuff, then breaking with my family was easy. And, uh, of course, for the, for the people on the board who are going through this kind of process, who have uh, pretty bad and corrupt families and who've tried their best to um, uh, to break through but are still getting rejection and hostility, um, I would suggest that uh, asking how to do it is, is obviously uh, important but I would suggest that do nothing for a couple of hours <laughs> and see, see how you feel. It will probably make things a whole lot clearer. And, and sorry, to those people who are joining, uh, I bought some ads recently with uh, donation money. And so we've got, uh, we had the biggest uh, uh, spike in, in hits yesterday. Uh, 275, uh, no, 279 people came to Freedom Man Radio uh, yesterday, which is great. But uh, to all those people who are joining who are shocked, shocked and appalled, uh, that, that I talk about uh, breaking with one's family, it's not something that uh, I, we talk about lightly, and it's not something that I just sort of say, well, you know, if, uh, if they don't bring you a second helping of dessert, what you need to do is storm out and never see them again. It's a little bit more deep and complicated than that. So just uh, have a look at the postings and maybe listen to some of the podcasts related to the family, and you'll understand a little bit more about at least the theory that I'm working with in this area. Now, the question then of, of God is what is the relationship of the conscious mind to the unconscious mind? Well, one of the arguments that I make in my novel, in a very subtle and artistic manner, I think, but one of the arguments I make in my novel, The God of Atheists, available for donations of $50 or more, is that the God of Atheists often is the self or is the conscious mind. So when you get rid of God, you imagine that your conscious mind is the only apparatus that you need uh, to deal with. So the question is, when you get rid of God, then you get rid of the idea of receiving wisdom from an entity larger than yourself. Now, I know you're bristling. If you're an atheist, then I'm, I'm an out-and-out -out atheist, totally. I'm not talking about anything supernatural here. I'm talking about a, a little bit of science that I've read about my wife practicing psychology and my own experiences as well and that I personally found that, that that was not productive that was not a very productive approach for me in my life it was certainly productive when I was in grad school right I mean you don't not read the, uh, the, uh, the textbooks or the source materials and then wait for divine wisdom or the wisdom of the unconscious so to speak to come to you in an exam so I mean there's lots of things that the conscious mind is fantastic at but there's lots of things that the unconscious mind is fantastic at. And even if we say that 80% for brain activity within the unconscious is too high, all it has to be is 
some significant portion. It doesn't even have to be a majority. But if we believe in God, then what we're doing, in a sense, is non-scientifically praying or asking for wisdom from our unconscious. Because, of course, there is no God, and so praying is not praying to anyone but yourself. I mean, assuming that you're not doing some sort of shamanistic call-and-answer prayer with your witch doctor, assuming that you're sort of praying silently and that you are uh, listening to responses that come back, well, it could well be argued that people who pray are unscientifically and kind of irrationally pursuing a rational course of action at certain times uh, and under certain circumstances. So I'm not talking about the people who don't want to give blood transfusions to their kids because God tells them not to or their priest tells them not to. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is that in times of great choice or times of crisis, which is when people sort of get down and pray, pray for an answer, right? They pray for an answer. Well, what they're doing, possibly, is unscientifically saying, I need the wisdom that I have inside me in the unconscious, this sort of larger than just my own personality, and I, again, I don't mean anything like the uh, collective unconscious of Jung or anything, but the uh, rather the integrating mechanisms of the unconscious. And the unconscious is the great sifter, and it's the great pattern maker. It uh, re- receives all the sensual impulses and organizes them according to specific patterns. Now, those patterns can be um, false self-generated. The false self and the true self both live in the unconscious. Uh, the conscious mind is what gives us... Uh, I dare, I dare say free will, although I'm sure that will be debatable for many people. The unconscious lives in the... Uh, uh, the, the false self lives in the unconscious at a level above the true self, and this is where you get something like a paranoia. Uh, so my mother, of course, is... Because she's done so much evil in her life, she is uh, paranoid, and the reason for that, of course, is that she has inflicted evil without accepting responsibility or apologizing, and so... The threat of retribution that evildoers create, right? I mean, if you if you do evil in the world, then you become very afraid of retribution, which is why, you know, in the 12-step programs, which I'm not sure I... I don't know much about, but I do know that one stage is, is apology because I, um, I watch Seinfeld, then that one stage of, uh, uh, of apology is important because it allows you to not be as afraid in your life, right? So once you get and you genuinely apologize to people and get some some level of forgiveness based on your desire to change your ways, then you are going to reduce the amount of paranoia that you feel because when you've been evil to people and neither taken responsibility nor apologized, then you know that they have a lot of feelings of hostility towards you, but you can't accept it as being their feelings because you haven't accepted them as independent agents, which is why you were able to do evil to them and why you don't feel it's necessary to apologize or to accept responsibility. It's a narcissistic approach. So all of the hostility that you generate in other people through your corrupt or evil actions ends up being rooted in your own unconscious because you can't accept that you've harmed other people and so you pretend everything's fine, but all of that hostility then takes root in your own unconscious. And, of course, that paranoia then creates further hostility, which you know, means that the paranoia is justified. And so it all becomes very complicated, but it really comes out of not owning your own actions and not apologizing to people that you've done wrong to. But... That's a, a sort of false self thing, right? Where, where, and that's sort of in the unconscious. I mean, the the um, the uh, emotional reactions that my mother has to say, 
a car backfiring three blocks away where she thinks that the insurance companies are trying to kill her is something that's, that's relatively authentic, the, the emotion, right? The, the, uh, the torture of paranoia is not insignificant and not uh, something to be taken lightly. But uh, So I do believe that that occurs in the unconscious, but it is a false self layer in the unconscious designed to protect the false self itself, right? So by getting angry at the insurance companies or whatever and being terrified of her doctors, she doesn't have to deal with the evil that she's done in her life. And so she's got this kind of angry will, right? Whatever she thinks is correct. Whatever she... Her interpretation is always correct. And the danger, of course, that that brings about is that you may have a false self-interpretation that's designed to justify your... Uh, something that you've done that you're not proud of, say. And so just saying that my interpretation is always correct is uh, not necessarily a very wise uh, wise thing, right? We need to have some humility because uh, we may be wrong, right? I mean, this is something that I'm always aware of. I mean, I could be wrong. And that's why when people uh, get angry at me as if I'm some sort of mad, dogmatic absolutist, well, uh, that's... Uh, uh, that's not the case. I'm always open to correction, and I think I quite continually say that, that if I'm, if I'm wrong, then what I would appreciate is, is being corrected. And the reason for that is that I have humility, and the reason that I have humility is that uh, I'm aware, using the scientific method, right? The scientific method is that we can always be incorrect. Something can always be uh, improved. Uh, Newtonian physics can be improved by Einsteinian physics, and so on. Well, that means that we always need to have humility and be open to uh, more information and more interpretation. So I've got an article that I'm working on at the moment, which I put out on the board, which I've gotten some fantastic feedback, and thank you so much, especially to the gentleman who got me the population of the 20th century, because I could be wrong about the, ma the mathematical methodologies I'm approaching in the analysis of state murders versus private murders. So I'm not putting it out there like this is, you know, absolute fact. I I put everything out, just about everything out, conditional. I don't put the scientific method out as conditional, but uh, the scientific method means that you have to have humility, and what that means is that you always have to be open to correction. And so how do we get the sort of imperious conscious mind, which is, you know, certain in its own way, how do we get the imperious conscious mind to be humble? Well, I would say that a lot of people will take the approach, and I'm not saying they do this with any knowledge of it, but I can see how it can work under certain situations. A lot of people will use the idea of God to bring about humility within their own uh, consciousness. So if the like very useful information, very useful instincts, uh, not to be acted on without verification, but if very useful instincts and, and insights and knowledge and understanding and wisdom, wisdom in particular is what the conscious mind uh, seems to lack quite a bit of, if there is a great deal of wisdom in the unconscious mind, but it doesn't present itself in the way that the conscious mind presents information by sort of popping it up in clear text, but if it's sort of <laughs> encrypted and symbolic for a variety of reasons, then it would seem to me that the humility that the conscious mind needs in the face of unconscious wisdom might be achievable or would be achievable by certain kinds of religious people through the process of prayer. This is not to say that they're praying to anything other than themselves, but it is a way of humbling themselves before a consciousness greater than themselves, right? Because one of the questions is always, why? Why would people believe in this crazy idea of a god? There is no consciousness larger than... Like, there's no consciousness without matter. There's no 
uh, life without form, all this kind of stuff. Well, if people are uh, primitive but want access to that wisdom, like if they have sort of primitive thinking, then what they're going to do is they're going to project their unconscious into the sky, right, into the world, into the ether. And they're then going to pray to that, and they're going to feel that they're humbling themselves to something larger than themselves, or gaining wisdom from a consciousness that is larger than themselves, but invisible. Well, of course, the contents of the unconscious are invisible to the conscious mind, in, in it sort of, you can sort of go down there and root around, it's not indexed or anything, you can't sort of go in like the Library of Congress and look up, you know, personal wisdom or anything. And so there's this consciousness that, uh, if the science is right, uh, dwarfs the activities of the conscious mind, and is invisible to us, and has uh, answers that we need, and wisdom uh, that we need, and, you know, there's that, um, and, and sometimes has wisdom that we dislike. Right? If we have aspects of the false self within us that we are uh, uh, acting on, then what the unconscious, what the true self is going to say is something that we we dislike, right? So there's that old saying about prayer that God answers all prayers. It's just that sometimes the answer is no. Well, if I, you know, when I was working through uh, with this uh, process within myself and I said to myself or I asked myself through this process of, of active writing, should I see my mother? Well, the answer was no. And the answer that then came to me later when I was in Guatemala, on that hammock, was that, uh, no, I should not see my brother. So, yes, I guess you could say that the, um, the unconscious responds to all requests. It's just that sometimes the response is no. When I was offered uh, a ridiculously high salary, but the company that uh, bought the company that I founded sold it to another company, and the um, the CEO of that company, I quit because I that was another thing that came through my unconscious was that I was in a corrupt situation and that's why I couldn't uh, I was having such trouble sleeping. Well, I um, was offered uh, oh it's like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which was an enormous amount of money for three days of work a week because I wanted to work on books. So I said I was only be available for three days a week. Well, I was offered that salary. And uh, my my active writing said, well, uh, don't take it unless you can negotiate something, even if it's a slight reduction of salary to get more stock options. The reason for that is not because you want more, but rather to find out if the person can negotiate with you or not. Because if the person can't negotiate with you, then, uh, then you don't want to get into business with them because it's going to be... Okay, they're, they're paying a lot of money then for uh, sort of a uh, dictatorial obedience situation, which is not going to be beneficial to you sort of psychologically. So, of course, I did try the negotiation, and the moment I began to negotiate, um, the phone calls simply stopped, simply stopped getting return calls. Right? So, um, that, that, to me, has always been very interesting, always try negotiating, just to find out if the other person has the capacity to negotiate. Right? It's, it's an important aspect of, uh, of business and, and personal life, the ability to negotiate. If somebody can't negotiate, then they're probably narcissistic or have some other psychological problem that's going to make your life miserable, so don't, there's no amount of money that's worth that, right? So that kind of process, I mean, I wanted the money. It would have been a fantastic thing to get the money and to only work three days a week and to work two days a week or three days a week on writing. But I had to turn it down. And, of course, I'm glad, I'm very glad that I did in hindsight. So this is sort of an approach that I'm taking about the value of a certain aspects of the religious tradition. Now, I'm not talking about organized religion. I'm not talking about priests. Uh, I'm not talking about holy books. I'm not talking about 
uh, witch burnings, and I'm not talking about inquisitions, and I'm not talking about the crusades, nothing to do with that. But I am trying to talk about how it might be possible to understand why people have a belief in a power or a, um, an authority that is greater than them, that, that has answers that they don't have themselves, and why people feel the need to defer to a larger authority than themselves. That authority can be the church, it can be an individual like George Bush, it can be the state as a whole, it can be the military, it can be the police, it can be Ayn Rand, it can be uh, Freud, it can be, um, well, no, it can't really be free domain radio because I'm not, <laughs> not trying to come across as any kind of authority in that way, but this basic idea that people seem very susceptible to is that there's an authority out there that has all these answers that you can get a hold of if you obey and that there's a certain kind of wisdom and submission and so on, which to the conscious mind and particularly uh, to certain aspects of the false self is anathema. It feels uh, humiliating and there's an excess pride. And so some of the, uh, I guess, some of the stuff that's in gentler forms of religion, so the, the Buddhism stuff and, and some of the gentler forms of Christianity and possibly of, um, uh, of Islam, though I don't know much about that, wherein there's more of a gentle approach to submission and more of a sort of pray for wisdom and pray for understanding and, and so on. I think that's all important because in the unconscious is wisdom and depth and also empathy. And, of course, the, the goal of a lot of life is, I mean, is to be rational, right? Now, if it's true that we do have answers within us that, um, that we don't have available to us in our conscious mind, because we're, we're not really taught that. I mean, particularly if we grew up in secular households, we're not really taught a lot about um, our instinctual understanding of life. And I certainly do get uh, quite a bit of hostility when I talk about my gut says, right? Some people get said, oh, you've thrown away all reason. It's like, no, it's perfectly rational to accept that we have an unconscious, uh, there seems to be some scientific evidence for it, and there seems to be scientific evidence that it's pretty significant psychic force or psychic uh, kind of energy. When I say psychic, I don't mean uh, like uh, reading, reading minds. I mean just sort of uh, psychological energy. And so it would really, I think, not be uh, particularly helpful to pretend that that didn't exist. That wouldn't be rational or scientific. So given that it does exist... How do we access it? Well, uh, you know, there's lots of uh, things we can talk about. If, if people are interested, you know, you post it in the boards or send me an email. I'd be happy to talk about my particular. I've got like, <laughs> I got like hundreds and hundreds of pages of work that I did during my uh, course in therapy, which was uh, fantastic and led me to a really uh, high level, I think, relative to where I was before, a really high level of uh, wisdom and understanding and uh, to love, of course, with Christina. But this process is something that is very crudely replicated by deference to authority figures. Now, it's not really so much the case that uh, it occurs with the state, although it does in, in the sort of cult of personality. Uh, people don't pray to George Bush, but they do believe that, a lot of people believe that George Bush was put there by the God that they do pray to. But in a very crude way, religion um, irrationally sets up a somewhat rational process of uh, asking a sort of higher or deeper consciousness for answers that you don't have but need. And uh, in, in certain kinds of situations uh, around empathy, around, uh, around ethics, I find this to be a very a powerful tool because ethics is very complicated because people who are unethical are generally quite well hidden and well camouflaged. And so uh, to sort of sniff them out is not the easiest thing.
And uh, for those who've gotten enmeshed in complicated and difficult romantic relationships with people who may be corrupt uh, or who may not be out for your best interests, can certainly understand what I mean here, where you're driven by a sort of conscious, you can talk yourself in and out of that relationship, kind of relationship like ten times a day. But the fact of the matter is that your unconscious knows the truth. And your unconscious knows the truth about your relationships. Your unconscious will give you everything that you need to know about your relationships. So, of course, uh, the purpose of, of maturity and wisdom and a, a rationality is to withdraw one's projections from the world and to, to reintegrate into the personality that which is yours, right? To, to cease to mistake the world for yourself. Or it's a very important part of, uh, uh, if not the most important part, of becoming a rational human being so that you're not confusing your own projections or your own personal, uh, your own personality with uh, aspects of the world itself. And so what I disagree with, of course, in, in religion, other than that it's generally false, is that it is a projection of the unconscious onto the world or onto the, into the sky or into the sort of nature of things so that the, you know, the, 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 there's a consciousness larger than ours that has answers for us and not understanding that it's actually within your skull. It's just deeper in your neurons than you can easily access. Uh, but to rather the, the project it out into the sky is uh, fundamentally problematic. And, of course, um, it's, uh, it's an illusion that it's out there. And it's an illusion that other people can interpret it for you uh, directly, right? So, you, so uh, wherever there's illusions, there's exploitation, right? I mean, as I wrote in The God of Atheists, there is deep gold in every gap between truth and illusion. And, and this is something that uh, the reason that I disagree with it is not because it can't provide people with um, a certain access to wisdom, but rather because it leads them to be exploited by people who say, oh, well, it's objective, therefore it speaks to both of us, therefore I can interpret it for you, and therefore, I'm, you, know, therefore you then obey people who claim to be agents of your unconscious, in a sense, rather than just ask your unconscious directly. So I hope this has been helpful. I think it's a useful way to approach the problem of why religion is prevalent and why it gives uh, certain people certain kinds of peace of mind or certain kinds of uh, empathy and wisdoms that... Uh, the freedom movement uh, sometimes can be seen to be lacking a bit. Uh, do let me know uh, how it goes. I'm sorry about my voice. I'm sure it will improve over time. But at least you won't have to do what I have to do, which is go back and listen to this and remove the coughing fits. <laughs> so I hope you're doing well. I will talk to you this afternoon. Uh, it's back to work for me. And um, uh, I look forward to your donations at freedomainradio.com. And please drop by the boards. Also, if you wouldn't mind signing up for... A feed burner. Uh, you can get uh, emails of when new stuff is posted, which might be relevant given that we had uh, a week of, of no posting. So I will talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening, as always.